0: My pappy was a railroad man. Blow the whistle, clear the track. When I'm gone, I won't be back. My pappy was a railroad man. Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother Jeff. Uh, Jeff, how's it going today? Yeah, I'm doing wonderful. I uh, Just. Loving this
1: mountain breeze. We're up here in the mountains uh, this summer again. It's like the ancestral home of the reboot of the Progress City Radio Hour for me. Uh, good memories of, uh, you know, the 4th of July episode we started everything off with. And it's like the home
0: base of that for me. I know. I envy your ability to retreat in the summer because that is the perfect place to retreat, to. It's really great. And it actually has a lot to do with the subject of this month's episodes. It, uh, this is, this is kind of a departure for us. These episodes and uh, really ties into our own ancestral past.
1: That's right. I mean, usually we do themed episodes, kind of an omnibus approach. Uh, this would be our first deep dive. Uh, Michael, uh, we, we usually don't do one topic. We do one theme. But-
0: yeah, well, I was, I was thinking this is by far the most we've ever dived into one specific subject for an entire podcast. And uh, we're actually going to be doing two, two about it. And it is a subject about which people might not really know anything at all. Right.
1: Uh, Well, in fact, the subject that you yourself had written, uh, if if people have your
0: book, they know something about it, right? Uh, It's true. It's true. This is the test. Whether you've read the book or not, right? That's right. We are talking
1: this week and and over the next uh, two episodes about the 1956 Disney film, The Great Locomotive Chase, uh, starring Fess Barker and Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, it was filmed right down the road from here and actually in this town of Franklin, North Carolina that we're at and in Clayton, Georgia and all points in between. You know, Michael wrote about it and, uh, and Michael also told me to just go see what I could find about it. And uh, between your knowledge and mine, we just keep finding more things to talk about over the time that we have been talking about
0: it. Right. I thought maybe you could find some fun little articles at the local library or at the historical, like uh, several years ago, I'd emailed their historical foundation and they said they might have a little, a thing or two. So, you know, I thought, go check it out. But you found all sorts of things and all sorts of people, some folks that haven't really been talked to about the subject. So that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, and we should set the scene a little bit. I mean, this place, Franklin and Clayton, uh, it was a beautiful mountain, a southern Appalachian kind of area, pretty remote. Uh, and up until, you know, the mid-century really was very undeveloped during the war. You know, the uh, Roosevelt's programs came in and built a lot of dams and had the CCC up here but our grandfather and grandmother who grew up here, uh, you know, my grandfather grew up with no electricity. They had all kinds you know, one room schoolhouse way of life. And that went all the way down to Clayton. So coming here was a real change of pace for the Disney production team. And I think that is the really compelling thing about this is how much they used the local community and interfaced with it and how different the culture was. Um, from Hollywood at the time.
0: Right. As you say, this was an area that had only recently been opened up. Thanks to all of the new deal era programs and that sort of thing. And that really modernized things uh, led to roads, led to infrastructure and really allowed people to really come in for the first time. And so it's a far cry from Hollywood. That's for sure. And imagining Walt and company rolling into town is really quite something. I mean, it, it is still a, this area we're talking about, is still a small, very small Southern town, but you know, back then it was even more so even, you know, everybody knew what was going on. Everybody was involved in one way or another. It was affected by this, by Disney coming to town. Yeah. And, and as you say, Disney himself did come to
1: town. It was kind of a vacation for him and he really had a great time, but even in younger age, there's a legendary restaurant called the Dillard house in Dillard, Georgia, kind of between the two towns. Great place, highly recommend, uh, for all you visitors. Uh, there's a picture of Walton there, in Clayton, Georgia, there's a place called the Clayton cafe where Walt actually ate a couple of pictures of Walton there and a write up about Walt. So, you know, his shadow still lingers in the area. And so it was kind of fun to go through and, and figure out a little bit of the, you
0: know, the shadows that are still there of the production of this. Totally. And that's how I found out about it. I, I remember seeing that photo in the Dillard house, which is one of my favorite destinations. And Several years ago, gosh, ten or more years ago now, I had the opportunity when uh, Jeff Curdy was doing work for the Disney Family Foundation and the Disney Museum to write some stories for their blog. And you know, he told me, "Here are some things that are coming up, or any of these things, something you would like to write about." And one of them, they were going to have a screening of this film, "The Great Locomotive Chase," and I said, "Well, I, I know that from you know, seeing Walt's picture in this restaurant and." This is close to, you know, where one side of our family came from. And, I mean, gosh, our family's been up in that area for well over 200 years at this point. And so we have deep ties to this area. And that's what got me researching on it and kind of led to all this. So, yeah, a lot to, a lot to talk about. It's a fascinating historical event, which obviously Walt was drawn to because of trains, as we will discuss and then the production was pretty fascinating too
1: right you know we've kind of talked about its contemporary 20,000 leagues under the sea recently but a pretty young live action studio so still kind of learning their craft this was a big you know location shoot so kind of a new experience for them
0: at the time yeah another big scope picture Oh, yeah. I wonder
1: if they brought the one lens back and forth across the country.
0: the same thing. So, hopefully, by this point, they had more than one lens to do it with, because that would be a rough uh, courier trip.
1: Well, before we take our deep dive, Michael, we got some mail
0: here. Yeah, I was excited. Excited to get to do a mailbag. We heard from listener Brian, who sent us a really cool email. Said uh, he found a striking similarity. He thought we would be interested in. Uh, he says some nice words about the podcast. He started listening to our fiftieth anniversary of Walt Disney World episodes, which I encourage you all to listen to if you haven't. Says he it gave him vivid flashbacks from the nineteen eighties Walt Disney World trips that otherwise would have been lost to time. He mentions. Waiting in the Fantasyland Skyway Queue, Jeff, that's your oh, yeah. neck that's of the woods. Domain, that's right. Oh, who mentions watching Yes, We Have No Bananas in the Penny Arcade, which is a great one. <laughs> I love one. it. Yeah, uh, Sitting at the outdoor Polynesian dinner show with the Torch Twirlers. So, uh, He says, uh, given our knowledge and our podcast titular city, said he wouldn't have been surprised in the least if you've considered a Disney Gillette parallel before. Uh, But we had not. So this information was new to me. Says uh, a few years back, he had been working with the company Gillette, known for their razors and other products. He says in the process, he managed to learn a lot about the man himself, King C. Gillette. Jeff? Sometimes, you know. You come
1: across names that just make you very envious. This is definitely one. King C
0: Gillette. King C Gillette. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to know that Gillette was named after a person named Gillette, but uh, not Pin Gillette, but uh, King C Gillette. <laughs> uh, uh, Brian says, as a wayward history major, I dove into the company history deeper than necessary, especially when I learned of his proposed utopian society. Because, of course, I did. Says the guy wanted everyone to move to upstate New York to live in a massive structured central metropolis of the future powered by Niagara Falls. Uh, sure. Why not? In 1894, he published a book all about his plan. You can read here. He gives us a link to the Internet Archive where you can find the book, which is entitled The Human Drift. Uh, he, he Sounds bad. Send some pics, yeah. He says, uh, you know, this was someone who was told he was crazy for trying something new, disposable razor blades, somehow scraped enough money to make it happen, built an empire out of it, and had an elaborate vision for a utopian society. So some, he says, you know, some parallels for with Walt, for sure. The big difference is King planned his utopia before he made it big and had nearly enough money and power to reasonably hope to affect it this is wild jeff I, I feel like you know this was 1894 this was around the turn of the century the 20th century i feel like there was a lot of utopian planning going on then oh yes oh yes because you know cities and industrialization and people were wanting to escape to new cities right escape to the countryside this is when roughly when Garden Cities of Tomorrow was written, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is what Epcot is heavily based on in design. And I just think it's fascinating, this movement of all these sort of entrepreneurial types wanted to get out to the country. And then 60, 70 years later, you've got problems in the cities and you've got another wave of people who like Walt who want to do the exact same thing that's really interesting that's
1: right some really interesting I mean he's basically uh, kind of coming up with housing projects uh, in a you know glorified utopian way and this stuff it's really interesting but you know I, you gotta wonder how much of this era was caused by the scamp figure michael who you uh, who
0: you so often think about and hobos it's like really hobos and scamp figures yeah um you know, know all the this- scamps riding on the like the backs of trolley cars and uh you know jumping on the running board of your car and yeah just causing trouble
1: not the upright kids who are selling the New York Daily, um, but the ones who are the ne'er-do-wells, you know, who are exactly stealing from local stores and, you know, all kinds of stuff. That's yeah, the problem. Peck's bad boy.
0: Peck's bad
1: boy. Exactly.
0: Right. Before they could monetize it by becoming a moochie figure, <laughs> they were a, a, a blight on society. Yeah, Moochie figure is more of the symptom of leisure. But
1: uh, <laughs> this this kid is, I don't know what calls that scamp. But yeah, well, I mean, fascinating stuff. I think all this, I think this era is, is just as fascinating as kind of the mid-century we harp on a lot. And I think they're definitely related, like you're drawing those parallels. It's kind of like ebbs and flows uh, of society. You see all these indicators causing the same kind of thing. There's a lot of prosperity and then kind of contraction and, but, but interesting that this is where, you know, the, the main street USA era is, (laughs) it wasn't all that way. and they were looking for, uh, for other ways out.
0: Imagine if main street was powered by Niagara falls. Uh, Yeah. There has to be Niagara falls involved somehow. It makes me want like a Main Street version of Tomorrowland. That would be interesting. Oh, that would be cool. You know? Yeah. But anyway, thanks to Brian for emailing. You can also join the fun, dear listener. You can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, you may even make it on the air. Well, Michael,
1: shall we dive in today?
0: Yes, I'm excited. I hope. All listener that is excited for the deepest, deepest dive into the great locomotive chase is ready to go because, man, (laughs) have we got a story for you.
1: You know, usually when we start a story around here, uh, we like to check in with Walt and we will do so today, but we're lucky that to tell this story, we have uh, another tour guide who will be introduced a little bit later who will tell the story with us, and that's Mr. Fess Parker. He's going to be guest starring today with us as our third host. It's like... He's our uh, Will Rogers Michael.
0: <laughs> it's it's true. I feel like we're in one of those singing along with Nat King Cole from afar kind That's of right. kind of deals. He's <laughs> right. he's we've incorporated him via Legacy Media into into our show and there's no one more affable to join this than Fez. That's well,
1: absolutely. But first, you know, as always, let's check in with Walt. <laughs>
2: boy in Missouri, I liked to listen to old soldiers who'd fought in the Civil War. We had both Confederate and Union veterans in our town, and my loyalties would go from General Lee to General Grant and back again, depending upon which side told the most exciting tale. Then I ran across the book in the family library called The Great Locomotive Chase by William Pittenger. This was an eyewitness account too, a Civil War story that did full justice to both sides. What's more, this story was about spies and trains. I've always been fascinated by locomotives. The older, the better. Down at Disneyland, we have the Santa Fe Disneyland Railroad, a 5 h scale model after early Santa Fe trains. The engines, very much like these famous Civil War engines, the Texas and the General. I guess it was inevitable that someday, we would make a motion picture about trains. And naturally, it had to be the Great Locomotive Chase.
0: As Walt indicates, the story of the Great Locomotive Chase is one of trains, spycraft, and daring do. It's the tale of the Andrews Raid, a famed Union operation in 1862, which, had it proved successful, could have dramatically cut short the American Civil War. This operation was the brainchild of James J. Andrews, a Kentucky civilian who served as a secret agent, smuggler, and scout for Union forces in the early years of the war. Andrews's plan called for a force of men to infiltrate northern Georgia, steal a train, and return north along the Western and Atlantic Railroad line while doing as much damage as possible to the rail line's infrastructure along the way. They would destroy track, burn bridges, and cut telegraph lines in hopes of rendering the route between Atlanta and Chattanooga useless. This would cut off Confederate supply lines to Chattanooga, allowing Union forces to take the city, which was itself a vital connection between the Western Confederacy and the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys. It's amazing to me that how limited infrastructure was not so long ago. Well, especially in the South.
1: I mean, that was one of the big boo-boos that they didn't... The railroad in the north was a lot more uh, developed. That was a
0: big deal, right? Right. And, and, you know, down south, there were only a few ways to get from one place to another. So if you could control that, you'd be in good shape. It is crazy. It is not that long ago, really. No, no, absolutely not. In April of 1862, Andrews led 22 men into Georgia, where, in full view of Confederate sentries and 4,000 troops... Uh, they stole a train while its crew and passengers were eating breakfast. Andrews planned to drive north from Big Shanty, today known as Kennesaw, to Chattanooga. Big Shanty. good Bold move. move. Yeah, bold. Yeah, big, big Shanty. Bold it's move. Yeah. Uh, what Andrews didn't count on was conductor William Fuller, whose train, the general, Andrews had stolen in Big Shanty. Fuller chased Andrews for 87 miles, first on foot, uh, then by hand car, then by a series of three steam engines. It's kind of like a sort of Wiley Coyote cartoon. Yes, very much so. The hand car and everything. Uh, The final of these three engines was the steam engine Texas, which Fuller raced backwards until he chased down Andrews near the town of Ringgold. Andrews and his men fled, but were eventually rounded up and tried as spies. Despite a brief prison escape, Andrews and seven of his raiders were transported to Atlanta and hanged. Other members of the party managed to escape to tell the story, while six remained prisoners and were later returned home in a prisoner of war exchange. Most of the raiding party were awarded the newly created Congressional Medal of Honor, making them among the first to receive the award. Andrews himself, being a civilian, was not eligible.
2: Since Fess Parker recreates the role of Andrews the spy, the principal character in our true life historical adventure, I'm going to ask him to tell you the story behind the story. I think we'll find Fess in his dressing room. Hi. Mr. Disney told
3: me I was to play the part of another real American, James J. Andrews. I began to read up on him. I find he isn't as well-known as Davy Crockett and other heroes of our history, but instead belongs to those hundreds of brave and dedicated men who've had their day of glory and since been forgotten. Andrews was an amazing man, and his exploit a fantastic affair. But right now, we have another story to tell you, the story of how we filmed the great locomotive chase. It's a big job. We had to run the race all over again, and we had to photograph it. I found what went on behind the cameras mighty interesting, and I hope you will too. For a locomotive chase, we had to have the locomotives, of course, one to portray the general, Shown here as it looked in 1862. And another to play the Texas of Civil War days. And so, we began to search for two old wood burners of the proper vintage. A railroad roundhouse would seem a good place to go looking for a locomotive. And in the yards of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, we located the perfect actor for the part of the gentleman. This was the William Mason. An actual Civil War locomotive a hundred years old. Now retired, this proud old campaigner served during the 1860s in the vicinity of Harper's Ferry. But we were lucky. We couldn't have found a better type to play the general. Across the continent, meanwhile, in the Union Pacific Yards at Los Angeles, the old Enyo was being brought out of retirement for the role of the Texas. Here was another genuine old timer, This one dating from the days of the Comstock Lode and the Nevada Silver Mines. Here we had an actor we felt we could count on. In fact, Walt Disney used it once before in his picture so dear to my heart. Our search was over. This was the player to reenact the role of the Texas.
0: The story of the Great Train Robbery made legends not only of Andrews and Fuller, but also of their locomotives. The trains used in the chase have become important cultural artifacts and have been portrayed on film many times by other locomotives, which have themselves become iconic. And I don't think Walt would let us get by without talking just a little bit about these locomotives. I, th- I think this was his main interest in the story. Uh, I think that is very clear uh,
1: from his quotes and uh, from the movie itself, you could say. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the locomotives pretty
0: are the star. Much. Absolutely. Uh, Perhaps best known of the engines is the General, the locomotive which Andrews and his raiders commandeered. Also known as the Western and Atlantic Railroad Engine No. 3, the General is a 440 American type steam locomotive built in New Jersey in 1855. The General was used before and during the war to provide freight and passenger service between Atlanta and Chattanooga. It was severely damaged by fleeing Confederate forces when they abandoned Atlanta in 1864. They didn't want to leave anything behind for the Union to use. Mm-hmm. After the war, the general was repaired and returned to service. It was completely rebuilt in the 1870s as rail technology advanced. And these changes heavily altered the appearance of the engine. It is wild to realize how primitive rail transit was at the start of the war. With these engines, Uh, Walt mentions in the show that we're going to discuss that they didn't have brakes. You basically just had to throw it into reverse and just squeal to a stop,
1: basically. When you had those giant funnels with the little grates on top, you would just hope they wouldn't catch everything on fire. There were so many, it just seems
0: unbelievably hazardous yeah, uh, In their primitive state. Yeah, I mean, this was not only before diesel. This was before they used coal. They used wood. Right. And, uh, yeah, talk about uh, low energy potential right. slash forest fire potential. High fires, forest fire potential.
1: Another thing that makes the great locomotive chase even more amazing is how they got to the speeds they did with wood-burning steam powered locomotives it's yes really cartoonish i mean really you already said.
0: it's like you picture the cartoon with like the engine like bulging and the rivets popping out and everything right, right. because it's kind of the emmett brown uh Emm- emmett brown effect the chemically loaded yes, uh
1: that's right
0: <laughs> to get to 88 miles an hour so yeah it's uh it's a wild thing just how primitive these engines were gorgeous though In Mm -hmm. 1891, the general was retired, but it was saved from the scrap heap by a proposal to restore it for display at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. After the exposition and an appearance at a Union Army reunion, which seems so weird to me, uh, the Cotton States and International Exposition in Atlanta in 1895, which is a new one
1: for me. Uh, Well, wait a second. Our great-great-grandfather attended that, I just found out, recently. Really? By the way. Yes. He took a wagon down there and and went to the Cotton States and International Exposition. Went to a
0: World's Fair. That is amazing. I bet that was a blowout. (laughs) How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen the Cotton States and (laughs) International Exposition? 1895, man. Uh, the, The general also made an appearance at the Tennessee Centennial Exposition in Nashville in 1897, before it took up residence in the Union Depot in Chattanooga in 1901. It would stay there for 50 years while also making a number of appearances at major expos. These included, and let me tell you, I'm jealous, The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's (laughs) 1927 Fair of the Iron Horse. Oh, yeah. Which, oh, man, I would have loved to have seen. The 1933 Century of Progress Exhibition in Chicago. The 1939 New York World's Fair. And Hmm. the Chicago Railroad Fair in 1948. Now, we talked about Walt's trip with Ward Kimball to the Railroad Fair back in episode 19. If you missed that, you should check it out. So you know, Walt could have uh, crossed paths with the general back in 1948.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I imagine if they went and saw that Wheels a Rolling pageant, they probably saw the general out there. Uh, <laughs> just wild. It's great. In
0: 1961, the general was refurbished for a 1962 tour meant to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Andrews's raid and of the Civil War itself. The tour kicked off on April 14th, 1962, at the site in Kennesaw where the chase began, and the locomotive proceeded under its own power to a number of destinations, including the 1964 New York World's Fair. So, this ancient train really hit all the major World's Fairs I'm obsessed with, and I am fairly jealous about this.
1: Yeah, and just that just uh, shows the fame of this incident and how long it lasted in the memories of the American people. I mean, you've got eighteen ninety three through nineteen sixty-four, most every prominent World's Fair, it's on
0: exhibition there. So. that's a really good point. And it's not just a southern curiosity. I mean, you've got it in New York in nineteen sixty four. I mean right. Don Draper era people going to see the general at the World's <laughs> Fair. And, uh, it, yeah, that's, that really does show how enduring this story is. Uh, later in the 1960s, there was a legal dispute over ownership of the train between the railroad and the city of Chattanooga, with custody eventually being given to the railroad and eventually the state of Georgia itself. Since 1972, when the engine was presented to then-Governor Jimmy Carter, The general has resided at the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History in Kennesaw. Which I have to go. I I know this. I've got a whole new list of places I need to check out after (laughs) uh, researching all this stuff. Yeah. The (laughs) other participant in this chase, uh, the other major participant, the engine Texas, followed a similar path to the general. It was also built in New Jersey, this time in 1856. It was also a 440 American-type locomotive, which served the Western and Atlantic Railroad along the same route as the General. After the war, during which it was itself captured by Union forces, it returned to Georgia where it underwent rebuilds, renames, and other refurbishments. It was finally retired to the rail yard in 1907, where it slowly began to weather and degrade. An article in the Atlanta Constitution that year about the Texas's deterioration led to a fundraising campaign for its preservation, but nothing was actually done at the time. The next year, the train was donated to the city of Atlanta, but continued to sit on the rail yard siding. In 1910, Wilbur G. Kurtz, an Atlanta historian, began to write articles advocating for the preservation of the Texas. The engine was moved to Grant Park in 1911, where it remained exposed to the elements, and then to the Atlanta cyclorama in 1927. Still, due to the lack of funds, the Texas remained unrestored. In 1936, under Kurtz's leadership, the Texas underwent a cosmetic refurbishment to return it to its original appearance. Uh, Over 80 years later, in 2017, it was restored again, this time in our neck of the woods, the North Carolina Transportation Museum, we got to give a plug to this great museum. Yeah, it's a must
1: visit if you're going through, you know, the corridor around Charlotte. Go up to Spencer and see this museum. It's the Roundhouse is something else. It's the old
0: Southern Railroad uh, repair facility. It's it's great. It's great. I mean, museum. they have so much that's just on permanent display, but they also have all sorts of famous uh, trains that are always coming through to be restored. They do a lot of restoration, a lot of rebuilds, a lot of refurbishments there, and it is a great little museum. And you can take a little train ride. So that's nice. That's right. Definitely that's right. worth if you're anywhere in the Charlotte area, check it out for sure. Uh, after its restoration, the Texas was sent to its new home, the Atlanta History Center where it resides alongside the rest of the old Cyclorama collection, which I need to go check out too. Of course, as a train nut, Walt wanted the great locomotive chase to be as realistic as possible, but of course he could not use these historic engines. Instead, he turned to the B&O Railroad Museum in Baltimore. From here, he borrowed the William Mason, a 440 American built in 1856, to sub in for the general during filming. Also on loan from Baltimore were the Lafayette, a replica of an 1837 vintage locomotive, as well as two Civil War-era coaches, a baggage car, and two ammunition cars. Now, the William Mason itself has had quite a career, appearing in a number of films. It even returned from a long retirement in 1998, when it was restored to appear in, of all things, the movie Wild Wild West. <laughs> classic. Uh, classic. Classic. It also appeared in Disney's Tuck Everlasting and the film Gods and Generals, so quite a pedigree there. Well, and it also had a
1: a big history of its own. I mean, uh, it evidently transported Abraham Lincoln to his inauguration uh, during the Civil War. And also as a world's fair attendee it went to the 1893 World's Fair in the 1904 and then was also at that 1948 railroad fair. so it was kind of a kindred spirit in uh time and
0: uh, reputation to the general absolutely is not noteworthy yeah yeah that's that's amazing and and you know continued to uh, have a working career is just amazing that you know a hundred. 40 years later it was still under its own steam with uh will smith there
1: yeah i mean i think it's like one of the oldest working steam engines
0: uh around (laughs) yeah yeah it is crazy yeah another 440 american the inyo was borrowed from paramount pictures to portray the texas Uh, the inyo has made a number of film appearances as well Notably, including Red River. Shout out to the great movie ride, yes, and Clint Ock, <laughs> and uh, so dear to my heart, Jeff. Yeah, that's a one that was so dear to Walt's heart. So he must have had this had this train <laughs> in mind. Uh, yes, it's yeah. just just wild. Uh, yeah, a very uh, personal project for him. That movie. Uh, Also, in a weird coincidence, uh, the Inyo appeared in the TV version of Wild Wild West, so I think it probably wins on that front in the Wild Wild West showdown. It was on the original series. I think so. It now resides at the Nevada State Railroad Museum in Carson City.
3: Our main actors. Our next problem was to find a railroad to run them on. Our story required a single track with a dirt roadbed, old-fashioned telegraph poles carrying a single wire and stations to match. In fact, it had to be a Civil War railroad. Oddly enough, we found it right here in the region where our story actually happened. So now I'd like to take you on location to the Blue Ridge Mountain country of northern Georgia. Here in the heart of the deep south lies some of the prettiest country you ever want to see. Winding through this rural setting, there runs a single track railroad of a sort that's hard to find nowadays. This is the Tallulah Falls Railroad, or the TF line, also known in these parts as the total failure. People everywhere love to kid their own railroads. But I warn you, don't try it here if you come from anywhere but Georgia.
0: The railroad along which the Andrews raid took place continues as a major rail artery to this day. Even by 1955, it had been straightened and modernized so as to be unusable for a period piece. Searching for a suitable substitute for the winding rails of the 19th century, Disney eventually discovered the short-line Tallulah Falls Railroad 50 miles to the east. The Tallulah Falls Railroad, or Old TF to locals, seems like it could be the setting of one of Walt's live-action films. Jeff, I imagine the Old TF going out to the lodge from Snowball Express or something like that.
1: Oh, I mean, so many eras of Walt Disney films, you
0: could add. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Could go well into that era, for sure. Uh, The LTF was incorporated in 1897. By 1907, it stretched 58 miles from Cornelia, Georgia, north to Franklin, North Carolina, one of our ancestral homes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The TF opened the isolated area to the outside world, allowing visitors to witness the majesty of the Tallulah Falls, which at the time was marketed as the Niagara of the South. Uh, The TF also brought badly needed jobs to an impoverished area and provided passenger, mail, and freight service to an area that had few adequate roads at the time. Eventually, the boom days of the Victorian resorts turned bust, however. A series of dams and reservoirs were created along the Tallulah River to generate power in the early 20th century, eliminating some of the draw of the Niagara of the South. And the city of Tallulah Falls itself burned in 1921, eliminating a major source of passenger revenue for the railroad. When Walt arrived in 1955, the TF had been in receivership since 1923. The yearly financial losses and a series of major accidents, everything from antiquated equipment to collapsing trestles, that's yeah. no good. No. Uh, this earned the line another nickname from locals, the total failure. Zing. That's harsh, harsh. Yeah, harsh. Even spectacular views from the train as it wound a thousand feet above the floor of the Tallulah Gorge couldn't keep passenger service from ending in 1946, and the TF had hauled only freight since. With only one train running daily, the sleepy little line would make a perfect playground for Walt. It was also good for the TF, with Walt paying ten thousand dollars for six weeks of shooting the film would provide a boost to the railroad's sagging bottom line. The TF was well-suited to Disney's needs. As it wound through the steep Georgia and Carolina hills, the railroad used 42 trestles in its 58-mile route. All of those, save for one, were wooden and of great vintage. Jeff, we have some family ties to the old TF.
1: That's right. Our great uncle um, worked the TF for years and years and years, uh, in a town called Demarest and uh, during the time they were uh, filming the movie I Climb the Highest Mountain he moved down to Cornelia but he was involved you know uh, he was part of the railroad while this movie was going on uh, also uh, our grandfather used the TF uh, around the time Mickey Mouse was born to go to uh, to school down in Demarest so Georgia down below Clayton so he oh would take my GF gosh, that's from right. From Franklin
0: down there to uh, to school. Uh, you know, riding the trains. Maybe he saw Mickey on the train himself. He might have. Maybe <laughs> Mickey was doing a tour of Eastern Railways. He had a suitcase and a dream as well. He did. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> a suitcase and a dream and a philosophy. That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our great uncle was still alive during our lifetimes, well into our lifetimes, and I always grew up hearing that he had worked on this railroad. And then when I started finding out about all this, and it all sort of clicked together, it was a a very surprising
1: overlap. I know. An interview I would love to have. I would just love to talk to him uh, in general, of course, as a human being. But uh, I'd love to talk to him about this and share all those stories. We, you know, just... Overlap, that knowledge
0: didn't quite overlap for us, but... um, No, not at the time. If if we had known there was a Disney connection as kids, we would have been (laughs) harassing
1: them regularly.
0: For filming the Great Locomotive Chase, the borrowed locomotives and the rail stock were shipped by rail to Cornelia, where they were transferred into the care of the TF. TF provided engineers and conductors to run the trains during filming, Except during breaks, when Walt took the trains out himself, of course. <laughs> yes. All in all, the Inyo and William Mason logged more than a thousand miles during filming, all back and forth over a single 35-mile stretch of track. Wow. So uh, they got their, got their use out of it. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Turns out that Walt and his crew arrived just in time. Uh, by 1961 at around five million dollars in debt the tf closed up shop for good with only a single depot some bridge piers and the visible remains of old railbed left to mark its importance to the local community
3: Shooting is about to begin. We've got them all together. Crew, camera, actors, props, and two valiant old locomotives. Now we're ready to restage the great locomotive chase. First, we'll go behind the cameras.
1: On December 21st, 1951, reports came out of Dalton, Georgia, a North Georgian small town just south of Chattanooga, that Walt Disney was making a movie to immortalize the great locomotive chase and was asking the people of Dalton for their help. The Chamber of Commerce announced that Walt Disney was asking Georgians to help him collect props for a full-length production telling the story of the chase. Quote, The artist needs old Western and Atlantic Railway timetables, pictures of the type of buildings or structures along the rail right-of-way between Atlanta and Chattanooga. He wants illustrations of covered bridges and trestles in the area, Maps, switches, stations, boxcars, and uniforms of the conductors and trainmen of that period. Something tells me this was not for public
0: broadcast as they took it, but it could be me. <laughs> yeah. We got this letter from Walt Disney. He wants. Can <laughs> you imagine me like, oh, I've got an old Civil War era conductor <laughs> uniform kicking around? Sure. Yeah. Here you go. Uh, although, maybe.
1: <laughs> I mean, who knows?
0: <laughs> At this point, yeah. Yeah
1: just a few episodes ago we discussed this time period of walt disney productions when the studio was transitioning into making live action films first abroad and then domestically theaters were eager for more disney product as the animated films took too long and were very costly to produce so from early on one of the choices for the first domestic live action film was the great locomotive chase a movie that appealed to walt and the involvement of trains in a historical narrative in a time when he was doing a lot of period dramas in addition to his other fare. It's clear this was a project that Walt was passionate about. According to his lore and various reports, Disney, as a youth in Missouri, liked to read and didn't have much variety in the family library. One of his mother's books contained a series of tales of daring do in the South, and one of the tales was about the general. It stuck in Disney's mind.
0: And he would go on to say this in the uh, the Fess Parker show. Well, you know, I thought that I thought that was interesting because, you know, when he says it in that opening, you think, oh, that's, you know, that's Hollywood hooey. You know, right. well, I found this book in the family library. You know, that's just, you know, scripted. But apparently not. Apparently it's yeah. true.
1: Concept art of this movie, as well as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, both worked on by Harper Goff were presented for an Audience Reaction Indicator Test, or ARI, and according to Goff, they chose 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as the first film for Disney to tackle. But right behind it in line pretty close was The Great Locomotive Chase, a movie that could be made for much less and wouldn't mortgage a studio like 20,000 Leagues would.
0: Yeah, no water required. Right. No no water shooting tank required. Yes. In
1: November of 1952, historian Wilbur Kurtz announced that he just returned from Hollywood and had been signed on to be the lead historian of the production and that the film would be filmed on the Tallulah Falls Railway, just like the 1951 film, I'd Climb the Highest Mountain, which, by the way, that movie, Michael, you got to check that one out.
0: Oh, yeah. It's worth a look.
1: It's worth a look. Uh, it's not the same as a great locomotive chase. That's my, idea. <laughs> <laughs> not very Holly weird. Also like that film, Georgians would be cast in roles while the film was shooting on location. Now our great uncle, we mentioned he had his son, uh, as an extra and I climbed the highest mountain. Michael, did you know that? I,
0: I had, he- I had heard that. And, yeah, uh, that is simply amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just to Bolo, think about. Bolo for that Kurtz claimed that the film Would start in May of 1953 When the trees were in full leaf But in reality Filming would have to wait a few more years While the dreams of Disneyland And 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Took most of the financial and production Capability of the studio We get a little bit more light On what was going on in November of 1953 When columnist Celestine Silby reported on a lunch with Walt Disney. And now slated for filming in spring of 1955, it appears that the movie ran into some story issues. Walt at this time really wanted the movie to be done in spring, saying, quote, I've been over the story and over that beautiful Georgia countryside, and it has to be spring of the year. I can see that wonderful light coming through the foliage now. He took a bite of his blueberry pie, and I dipped into my sweet potato pie and we both lovingly inspected our separate mental pictures of the rolling red hills of North Georgia in the spring. Any way you look at it, said Mr. Disney, after a moment, that locomotive chase is a good story. We've written it once, but it has to be revised. The budget is all set. We've even got the locomotives engaged and picked the strip of track north of Marietta, but we haven't cast the picture yet. It has everything, grinned Mr. Disney. Yankee spies and one Southerner who just won't quit. Man, I want to be at
0: this lunch. I know. I mean, you got blueberry pie, you got sweet potato pie. I wonder if it was the house of pies in LA where they were at. <laughs> the wistful glances uh, just seems like really was- just, just dreaming, dreaming of those sunny days, sunny spring days in North Georgia. That's
1: right. Oh, it is interesting to me that so often Disney is playing to both sides here. He often quotes his Missouri upbringing, like in the like in the TV show, uh, it's clear that at the time, the broader Reed White culture was romanticizing the cause of the South in the wake of Gone with the Wind and all the renewed interest in the Civil War.
0: Yeah, you can really tell all throughout the the show on the anthology show and pretty much in all the articles about it. It's kind of splitting the difference between, you know, all those plucky Southerners and it right. was adventurous union
1: rogues well even in yeah i mean in the movie when the uh, cavalry shows up it's like romance like the mm, knights mm-hmm. are here it's like well, weird um but not weird if you know the history
0: <laughs> right and it it, it does uh, would not be done the same way today let's just say no in July of
1: 1955, the Chattanooga Daily Times reported that Fess Parker had been cast as James Andrews, and that originally, quote, Disney had planned to make William Fuller the hero of the story. But now that Parker was cast as Andrews, the story would change. Mercy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. I don't know about that. The Times would report in 1952, quote, Disney had stated the film would pay tribute to Fuller, quote, whose untiring efforts, vigor, and initiative prevented what otherwise would have been a Yankee success.
0: Oh, dear. The article... (laughs) I hope this was only local press uh, (laughs) embellishment. The article would go on to equivocate,
1: saying that Parker would portray Andrews, quote, who was sympathetic to the Confederacy, but felt the cause of the North was for the future good of the country. (sighs) hmm. It also speculated that Fess could lose all the goodwill locally he had earned for portraying Davy Crockett, which incidentally was wrapping up filming of Davy Crockett and the River Pirates in Kentucky at this time. So the Daily Times,
0: man, a little obviously subjective. (laughs) One of the rebel leaning papers, but you know, you think about. I don't know how current events are. Then you project back seven, six, 65 or seventy years. I mean, you can only imagine the the hot takes well, about anything I mean, related to this at the time.
1: I remember even in our childhood, it was completely different than it is now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but the Daily Times globally had beef, you know, in another article revealing the choice of the Tallulah Falls Railway over the railroad that ended in Chattanooga, where the actual events took place, the newspaper called the TF, quote, so weed-choked, tie-sore, and wooded that it looks like a roadbed of the 1860s. Passive-aggressive, man. Leave the TF alone.
0: They were still bitter about uh, losing the general, uh... (laughs) too. Bitter
1: about a lot of things, it seems. But in addition to Parker, Disney cast Jeffrey Hunter in the role of William Fuller. Lawrence Watkin, who wrote many of the Disney movies of this time, including the screen treatment to Treasure Island, Sword in the Rose, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, and The Light in the Forest, in addition to coming up with the characters of Spin and Marty, would not only write, but be asked to produce this film, though he had no experience in doing so previously. He would even co-write a few of the songs. This man was talented. Yeah, rising star for sure. Francis Lyon would be tabbed to direct. He had mostly been a film editor working on movies for years, including Red River, yet again mentioned, but had been directing some TV, including Spin and Marty. So a real Spin and Marty heavy uh, production crew here.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. The ensemble
1: cast was quite talented, though Parker and Hunter take up most of the oxygen, as well as the folks from Clayton, who we will find out about later. Jeff York is probably the most notable, him of Mike Fink fame, but also Western stalwarts, Slim Pickens, Harry Carey Jr., and our own friend of the program, Stan Jones, would make appearances. Uh, Stan Jones, as you may remember, wrote Ghost Riders in the Sky and Ringle Wrangle and the Texas John Slaughter theme, Michael.
0: He's popped up more than just about anyone (laughs) (laughs) over the course of the podcast. He's on the bingo list now at this point. Yeah, prolific guy.
1: Filming was finally slated for September and October of 1955. I don't know what happened to the visions of spring filming, but I have quiet suspicions that Walt's hobbies may have been involved. Uh, Of course, Walt was very busy in the spring of 1955 with all things Disneyland, and it appeared he didn't want to miss the filming of The Great Locomotive Chase. According to Larry Watkin, He is nuts about trains. Trains are his avocation. Walt Disney will be here when we fire up the old wood burners. He says it will be like a vacation for him. The Valley Times was even more explicit when they reported Walt Disney couldn't have missed this location trip for all the hot dogs in Disneyland, a two-week excursion to the little mountain town of Clayton, Georgia. By September 15th, the Clayton Times reported that the pre-production crews had been busy working up and down the Tallulah Falls line, under the supervision of production assistant Bill Sheehan. Sheehan was bullish on the help he was receiving, saying, We have met nothing but gentlemen and ladies. Everyone has been very helpful and eager to cooperate. It makes working here a pleasure, for the native folk are considerate of our problems. <laughs> Which I just had to include that question.
0: Very <laughs> considerate, those native folk.
1: So weird. Assisting Sheehan was one R.L. Addington, or Uncle Bob, as he was affectionately known in the area, Uncle Bob was a venerated conductor on the TF line and helped Sheehan pick sites for sets and find housing for the crew. Uncle Bob had been a conductor on the TF line for 50 years. According to him, quote, It was nothing in the old days for me to stop the train at a crossroad, pick up a sample of cloth from a farm woman, Take it to Cornelia and match it with thread to make a dress. I also carried prescriptions and had them filled for the sick. I even summoned a doctor to perform an operation on a man who lived over the mountain. And I guarantee you, our great uncle knew Uncle Bob, man.
0: I wish I could
1: have known some more stories about this.
0: I'm sure. You know they had to have tons of stories. Because, I mean, this was a small, short-line railroad. And I am sure there were a million stories like that of just... Stopping at the crossroads to pick something up,
1: and it was through some of the most—I mean, you could call it primitive. Uh, you know, it, it was like a time machine uh, going yeah. through this this area. A lot of places didn't have electricity, and you know, had one room schoolhouses and all kinds of amazing places, but uh, definitely not modern. And uh, right, well, and
0: as I said, not not. Roads and infrastructure that you would use to like bring in a, a lot of people or move move around certainly not to move, you know, freight or anything like that. Right. So it was right. it was like a you know a hard sort of hard scrabble sustenance existence. You know. Yes. According to the Clayton Times,
1: Addington was renewing acquaintances up and down the line from Cornelia to Franklin, and everyone involved was using the film location names for wayfinding as opposed to their actual locations. The town of Clayton's train station would serve as both Marietta and Atlanta's train station, with a little movie magic of simply moving a sign and having some different shingles put on. Franklin's station would serve as the Itawa station, and the hardly existent town of Otto would have the Kingston station. And in Prentice, between the two, the Big Shanty Station and Lacey Hotel sets would be built. Some of these locations would have existing structures, and some would just be built from scratch. Finally, by September 25th, the advance work had been completed, and the production moved into Clayton to set up residence for a month of filming, starting on the 26th. For a town of around 1,200 people... Welcoming the Disney crew of almost 200 was a big job and required lots of logistics in addition to all the excitement. Fess and the Stars would take up residence at the Duncan Motel, but the Hotel Clayton would also be used to house the crew as well as any bed and breakfast or guest house available in the area. And the Hotel Clayton is still around, at least the building is. Uh, That's it's great. It's not open anymore, but there's some still some history here. According to police chief J.R. Rickman, quote, I haven't seen this much excitement in Clayton since the first locomotive rolled into town when I was a boy. So the train hadn't yeah. been there that long. <laughs> Two diesel trains full of movie making equipment arrived with costumes, machinery, makeup, special effects, and of course the locomotives themselves. Disney bought period coaches they had leased, Michael had mentioned, and five boxcars they had built in Burbank all of which would be destroyed, and all manner of railroad paraphernalia that they had borrowed, maybe from Dalton, Georgia, who knows. As the movie makers went about their work, the town of Clayton and other visitors from nearby areas had front row seats to the Hollywood magic. A local American Legion commander was spotted, quote, picking up signs red-faced that welcome Walt Disney to Rabin County. We come to Rabin County was the original instead of welcome. Oops. Oh. so <laughs> Somebody got chewed out that day. Yeah, it's not a good look for the Legion. The depot, in addition to serving as both train stations for Marietta and Atlanta, was a makeup studio and wardrobe where extras could be outfitted in period wardrobe along with the stars. Local papers reported that the crew was hampered somewhat by curious onlookers, but went about their task of readying the engines with courtesy. Quote, Youngsters climbed all over the two trains and had great fun when technical crews working on top of the boilers accidentally stepped on the bell cord. The clear tones of the locomotive bell could be heard for half a mile. Reports also shared that Walt Disney was as eager as some of the Clayton kids to see the engines.
0: (laughs) I I bet he was just absolutely ridiculous during this entire experience.
1: His pictures of him like on a bank with people, you know, just hanging out, just... Wild, wild. Have you seen the train? Have you seen the train? It's like a town of 1200 people bringing in 200 people from Hollywood. You know, it's just mm-hmm. unbelievable. A high frequency radio system was set up with transmitters on the trains, headquarters, and on Black Rock Mountain, 3,500 feet high. Where a radio jeep stood by to relay all the messages which could not otherwise get through the surrounding maze of forest and mountains. So, high tech. I
0: know. Too bad our uh, grandmother didn't have her scanner at that point. <laughs> That's true. To, uh, <laughs> she could have picked it up for in. sure. She could have picked up all the chatter.
1: Yeah, her her house was between filming locations. Just wild to <laughs> oh, think about. I know, it's so crazy. Finally, on September 26th, shooting began. Residents of Clayton wasted no time getting in front of the camera as the first scene was shot with Jeffrey Hunter and the Reverend Jim Dillard, a Baptist preacher in town. Talk about pressure, man. Just get out there. I know. Yeah, really. Uh, According to the paper, the master himself, Disney, was on hand. Hundreds crowded the Clayton station of the Tallulah Falls Railway, hoping to catch a glimpse of the magic that is movie making. Dillard's performance, shot and reshot seven times, was applauded by Director Lyon. Very good, Reverend, the director called from his canvas-backed chair. I mean, gosh, we're going to talk some more about the folks of Clayton and their acting prowess uh, later. But, yeah, to put somebody in at the first scene.
0: And he does great. The the, the preacher does really well in the movie. Like, you would never know that this is just some... Random guy, yes, that they picked up. It's 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 pretty amazing, yeah. Just goes to show you anything could happen in the
1: movie. That's, that's right. And so began the work of filmmaking up and down the line of the Tallulah Falls Railway. Charles Boyle, who was a noted cinematographer who worked on 20,000 Leagues and many Disney classics, was working on capturing the locomotive action. Another cinemascope feature, the film used all kinds of rigging on the locomotives to catch the action, including building platforms on the side of engines to film inside the cabs and putting them on the outside of locomotives, a special setup to catch those spinning of the wheels as the engines of the time didn't have air brakes. Like Michael said, they would require throwing the engine into reverse to stop the train. They show that a lot in the movie. They, uh, screwed. Yeah. It (laughs) seems very dangerous every time. Yes, it does. Yes. Uh, A camera car that was used on the parallel strip of highway at times was later outfitted with flanged wheels to go on the track itself and followed the engine around also seems a little dangerous, but uh, there they went following them along.
0: (laughs) Well, and when you see footage of this, as we may talk about, it's like Jeff Hunter and these guys just on top of this speeding box car with this truck chasing after And just like, oh, there there he goes. Right. Just just riding that train down the rails. Right.
1: By September 29th, work had moved up the line and was being plagued by periods of rain, as common in this area as it is in Central Florida. As Walt and the crew looked up at the sky and pondered what was coming next, according to the Franklin Press, quote, spectators continue to marvel at the authenticity of The fresh lumber that before their very eyes was transformed into weathered and almost dilapidated walls in a set. Fresh paint, which mysteriously faded and peeled in a matter of minutes to blend in with the scene. Fresh brick that became rounded and worn with almost a new wave of a worker's hand. This is the abracadabra of Hollywood. Uh, You know what I call this, Michael?
0: What's that? The 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 usual usual care care and and precision? That's
1: right.
0: All I could think of was these people who probably would want nothing more than to like fix up the side of their barn or like re-roof, re-shingle their barn and they're seeing Disney bring in all this fresh lumber and make it look all wrecked. Yes, <laughs> I'm probably thinking, yes. I I could
1: use I could use some of that. But I'm sure, you know, as <laughs> Clearly, uh, knowledge of woodworking was probably more widespread there than other places. Uh, I'm sure they were very impressed. Yeah. At the oh, thickness yeah, sure. of the Hollywood craftsmen. Yeah. Just an impressive, uh, their authenticity is a great word for it because they really went to great pains to try to make it as authentic as they could, which was, you know, a Disney hallmark at this point. Mm hmm. When Weather cooperated, work was being done at the Lacey Hotel set up at Prentice near Franklin. Behind the scenes with Fess Parker shows a bit of legendary map painter Peter Ellenshaw hard at work on location at the Lacey Hotel, driving an incredible car, and we see a bit of his process.
3: We began the construction of the Lacey Hotel at Big Shanty. This was where the chase would begin, the place where Andrews would steal the train, and we wanted it to look completely authentic. So we called in experts in the art of making buildings look old. For instance, porch pillars were shaved and rounded till they looked worn and weathered. The building began to look like the real thing. And already our locomotives were puffing with impatience. The Lacey Hotel of 1862. But wait, there was one thing missing. The whole second story. Well, Here was the man to fix that in a hurry. In the profession, he's known as the map artist, and he's capable of some amazing optical illusions. Here he lines up his sketch to match the perspective of the real building. Then he touches up his colors and shadows to match the time of day. In this line of work, you have to be fast and sure. But by means of this movie magic and with precisely the right camera angle, this is how the Lacey Hotel finally looked.
1: Ah, oh, man, that car is cool. And again, I mean, I know we can't say this enough, but just imagining him driving around this area
0: blows my mind, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I never in my life, you know, all the times we went up to visit our grandparents and, you know, messing around in this area, thought, Oh yeah, Peter Ellenshaw was up here sometime, right. and we're crossing paths with Peter Ellenshaw. I remember when he was down here working. It's so it's so weird. When we were
1: growing up, this was a place still where not much happened. <laughs> it didn't
0: seem when we were there, but uh
1: yeah, it's just they were out in the woods.
0: <laughs> well, especially yeah. I mean, this area. I mean, even today between. There's a lot going on in Franklin. There's stuff going on down in Dillard, and you know, but the area between, like Otto, not a lot going on in Otto, right? <laughs> you know, farming, not, not which is in Otto. Yeah, auto. Yeah, right. yeah. There, I mean, there are things happen, there, but yes, <laughs> things happen, but uh, not a lot of major studio work going on, right? There. Right. Well, Franklin
1: Press's wacky columnist, J.P. Brady, the, uh, you could call him the, uh, the Louis Grizzard of Franklin, perhaps, was on the <laughs> scene and had this to report Being just plain nosy, I was down on the big shanty set the other day, talking with Fess Parker and making a general pest of myself. Out along the tracks, there was plenty of activity. The general, its wheels spinning on the slick tracks, would speed out of the station, and in a couple of winks of the eye, Jeff Hunter and some men would streak out after it. In a few minutes, they would come panting back up the tracks. The train-chasing bit went on three or four times. "'What's up out there?' I asked Fess Parker, who had his lanky frame draped comfortably over a barrel behind the lacy hotel set. He flashed a row of teeth and a beaming Davy Crockett smile and noted impishly, "'I'm stealing their train.' You mean it took you four tries, I chided? I'm a slow learner, he answered. Uh, <laughs> it seemed like you could just walk up and start shouting at the cast and get in a conversation with
0: them. <laughs> Apparently so. Not a lot of like heavy security back on set <laughs> in these days. Hey! Yeah, also according to this Miss Brady, uh, this is
1: one of the most down-to-earth and genuinely friendly bunch of folks I've found in a long time. And that's from the great Mr. Disney right on down to the lowest-salaried man. The prying public has made a nuisance of itself. They blunder into the sets while the cameras are rolling. One's gargantuan sneeze fouls up the sensitive soundtrack. Still through it all, Mr. Disney keeps smiling, signing autographs, and holding kids on his lap while proud mamas snap pictures. <laughs> I'm the thought of a giant sneeze being like, Cut!
0: What? What?
1: What? You! Sorry! just incredible to think of like let's get the kids in the car and go down and watch the disney movie and i
0: hear they're shooting the disney movie down there in clayton today (laughs) let's go see (laughs) load them up oh
1: man another columnist from clayton reported on the scene as well fess parker who had no work to do decided against going back to the hotel and taking a nap Instead, he stood beside a small wood fire somebody had built beneath a tree to keep the camera crew's hands warm and chatted in an aimless, happy fashion with anyone who strolled up. As Jeff Hunter ran over and over down the train line, the director sent an assistant off to silence a hound dog nearby to get true quiet on the set. When Hunter was saying the word authorization, the director turned to the reporter's child and said, Say authorization! To get the accent right, jeff hunter born in new orleans said we're trying to sound like southerners without that you know which i don't know <laughs> i don't <laughs>
0: to what do you refer jeff hunter <laughs> yeah somebody get that dog to be quiet <laughs> i can just picture it <laughs> i mean there's so much i mean you know all these farms around and stuff it's yeah it's not a i mean how, super quiet how would there's, you Yeah, Yeah. wildlife will end up there. You get, you know, birds and, you know, all sorts of wildlife sounds around. That's right.
2: One southern gentleman to another fest. That's a mighty fine looking outfit you got on. Well, thank you, sir. Well, you're welcome, sir.
3: The Andrews raid would have succeeded without opposition if it hadn't been for a young Confederate conductor, William Fuller, played by Jeff Hunter. Hi, y'all. Jeff, would you like to tell
2: them about your part in the great locomotive chase? Well, I uh, I really had to do a lot of running after that stolen locomotive.
1: Once Hunter learned to say authorization correctly, it was back to running. And much ink was spilled about Hunter and his running and him in general. One of those most impressed with Hunter's athletic ability was the son of the actual Captain Fuller, Bill Fuller Jr., who attended the shoot when Hunter was running around after the train. Considering Hunter had to do the take over and over again, it really was something that caught everyone's notice. <laughs> that, that Jeffrey Hunter and his running. Uh, males seemed to obsess over Hunter as much as the ladies. One columnist continued to write about Hunter in blurb forms and more, saying, quote, Girls and ladies swoon over his clear green eyes, and local men around town have been heard to say when the next movie comes out, we hope it's an exclusively an all girl cast with Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell playing the lead. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot written about this. There was no love interest and no ladies. Sorry, men eat some ladies dames in this pick. Come on. <laughs> and then this little analysis Hunter set at a barbecue last week and couldn't eat for shaking hands with the ladies and young girls. At a dance that followed, he was swamped with handshakes and conversations, ranging all the way from the high school level to the women's club circle. Hunter is interesting and interested. He listens with an air of a man who believes a story. He talks with sincerity. But after close observation, I find him still a man. A mortal man. He is no better looking than a half a dozen Rabin County residents. Give Horace Cannon Jr., Son Derek, Joe Luke, Dr. Bob Kane, Luke Hendrick, or Paul Lutz the proper publicity, considering they had an acting background, and maybe movie audiences would fall for them. Just maybe. Hunter seems to have that certain something that no one, either in and out of the movie industry, can put their fingers on. You've either got it or you haven't. Hunter seems to have a double dose. Man, I cannot get enough of these newspaper writers. Michael. Here are some (laughs) local
0: people who are as handsome as Jeff Hunter. Round up the usual suspects of handsome men. Dr. Bob Kane, an eligible young doctor from the area. Quite handsome. Comparative to Jeff Hunter.
1: And look, I am going to say it right here and now. Jeff Hunter uh, deserves all the thirst that uh, could be had from the ladies. Uh, I oh, guarantee yeah. you, those men do not hold a
0: candle to Jeffrey Hunter, if I may say no. so. Sorry, Horace Cannon Jr., but <laughs> you're no Captain Pike. <laughs> well, the best bit about Jeffrey
1: Hunter most certainly comes from Clayton Times columnist Shirley Barker, who had this to report. Something that happened over the weekend has put me in a line, high in line for praising the Hollywood, and Clayton's, idol. Beverly, Mrs. Steve Cannon, and I were bearing the brunt of insults from our esteemed husbands, Eddie and Steve. They had informed us, first of all, that we were too old and too ugly to get the time of day from Jeff Hunter and Fess Parker. Now, both of these insults may have been true, but women have left home for less. All that was left for us to do was to say, Well, that's not so. We bet they would come home with us. Then the husbands looked at each other and us and said, We'll put a small wager on that, and even if they would, you two don't have enough nerve to go get them. The only course left open to us was to get up and leave. We did. Arriving at Mr. Hunter's and Mr. Parker's abodes, we found them gone. What will we do now? we asked. Whatever we did, we vowed not to go home without them. So we found Mr. Lewis Hazillo and asked him where Jeff and Fess were. He told us that Fess was out of town and that Jeff, with his parents Mr. and Mrs. Hurty McKinney's of Milwaukee, were attending a party at the Nicholson house for Mrs. Stan Jones. There is so much in that sentence. I can't even... Okay. (laughs) We told him our plight and he said... It would be too bad to intrude on Jeff since his parents just arrived in town, but I'll tell you what I'll do. When Jeff comes out, I will speak to him and tell him your story. He did. I'll go up and knock on the door, Jeff said, and I'll pretend I'm looking for you. Nothing could have pleased us more. It's Jeff Hunter, we heard a familiar voice say from our place in the car, and the day was complete.
0: What? What is happening? (laughs) Jeff Clayton. Hunter
1: playing playing pranks
0: Jeff Hunter's at the door. <laughs> Jeff Hunter prankster. God. I just God. love this is salty for the newspaper. Uh this is what we have lost with the loss of local newspapers. It's true. I, I bemoan the loss of local newspapers cuz this is all just pure gold. It's just hilarious. Uh
1: The thought of him playing this, you know, in a time, oh, just funny. I'll I'll go play a trick on your husband. It's Jeff Hunter. Oh, God. Tired of hearing about this guy. You're too ugly.
0: You could never take Jeff Hunter home. (laughs) You were too scared to even try. Well, we will show you.
1: And they did. Uh, It seems Jeff Hunter, out of all the folks involved, was just completely embedded in all the goings on in Clayton. In addition to the barbecues and dances and being hosted at the Hutchinson House for Mrs. Stan Jones' reception, uh, Hunter attended the Reverend Dillard's church service on Sunday mornings in Clayton to hear the good word from his film co-star. As Shirley mentioned, Hunter's family would visit from Wisconsin, and Hunter took them up and down the train line to see a real steam engine in action. Pretty cool. Uh, All was not as wholesome for Hunter, however, as according to Harry Carey Jr., he and his castmates often suffered from boredom and cured the problem by drinking. Since Georgia was a dry state, old Jeffrey Hunter would be tapped to be the hooch runner to drive across state lines to buy their liquor and bring it back to them, which, I mean, I want to know where he was getting the liquor in Macon County. I Uh, know. (laughs) State line (laughs)
0: package (laughs) store. I don't know. Um. Yeah, now I'm like picturing him crossing paths with all the like proto stock car racers back well, when they that's were running. The liquor. It's like,
1: what was the liquor he was getting? It, it begs the question. I <laughs> bet it was high test. I bet so. Uh, I also heard a you know, that in that article, they said, well, or in the interview, he said, everybody but Fess was drinking, but I heard a family anecdote about Fess, which We may have to share with our Patreon members on our live stream, but, uh, salacious, salacious, but, uh, yeah. By October 13th, the Lacey hotel and big shanty stations were already being dismantled as the scenes there were completed, but rain continued to plague the production. Disney would lose around $12,000 a day. If it rained with extras and bit players being left on constant call and the cast left to their own devices and tiny Clayton drinking their high test hooch, i guess or just going and teasing people's husbands i don't know <laughs> disney decided to be productive in the times of rain and built four sets inside the nearby mountain city playhouse to shoot interior scenes once planned for california and the mountain city playhouse i might add just reopened uh i think last year it's like a oh that's great square dance place yeah it's it's open Movie studio and square dancing. That's right. The shots that took place in the Mariota hotel room and the Lacey Hotel's interiors were all done on location here. According to a local report, almost all the furniture in the four sets at the Mountain City Playhouse has been furnished from local people's homes. A piano... (laughs) A piano that belongs to a lady in Franklin is over 150 years old, and when it was brought to Franklin many years ago, it took several months to transport from Boston to the lady's kin in North Carolina. This oh, is local reporting in its finest, Michael. Just so it many is. parenthetical, just very conversational.
0: Let me you tell know, you. I, it took them <laughs> several months to transport. Was it Lassie Kelly's? Oh, <laughs> well, you gotta wonder. Uh, also,
1: I mean, does that mean Emil Curie was on around? Cause he did the interior. I, that's a good question. That's a good question. Somebody has got to art direct all that that's stuff. That's right. That's right. With the rain, there was more time to rub elbows with the stars and Clayton. Fess Parker was tabbed for having a favorite meal of cornbread and black eyed peas, but it was also discovered that movie crewmen don't care for family style meals. But like a choice of their meat and vegetables. I, uh, oh, come on, guys. I found a bunch of pictures of grumpy actors at local cafes. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hit up the Dillard house, man. What are you complaining about? real. Well, they don't like family style, Michael. I know, well, I know, but. That's the
1: problem. You gotta learn. Yeah. Holly weirdos were also spotted at square dances asking why the caller kept yelling, much to the delight of the locals. But not only the crew and their family was involved, according to papers, Mrs. Pete Lyon and Mrs. Larry Watkins said recently that they liked Clayton very much. They thought the climate wonderful and the people friendly. Both shopped in the stores and bought some, quote, real cute clothes. It's just, I mean, everybody bringing their family is so interesting to me. (laughs)
0: Let's just go on vacation to Georgia in October and just everybody go hang out there.
1: One notable pickup in Clayton was a homeless fox terrier that was adopted by the actors and quickly named Walt. Walt was spotted by Fess Parker in a motel courtyard, and as it was raining and cold, he took the dog in. Walt would go on to stay with most of the principals in the film, including the incredible Mr. Hunter, and became so popular that the crew was thinking about taking him back to Hollywood but due to various complications, they decided to put him up for adoption with the help of the Atlanta Constitution. The Why I Want Walt contest was conducted by the Constitution and reviewed by a panel to pronounce a winner who would be taken to the set in Clayton at the newspaper's expense to receive the dog. And so one Hiram Buffington from Atlanta won the prize and visited the set and met Davy Crockett himself and this was all filmed for the disneyland tv show so i'm very sad to say it doesn't show up in the final cut of behind the scenes of fess
0: parker oh, it's here buffington man that i mean that is a name straight out of central casting itself <laughs> uh, and i love the atlanta constitution nicky vibes yeah atlanta's constitution getting in on the uh on the uh, Ballyhoo. Yes,
1: there. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, according to behind the scenes of Fess Parker, downtime was taken up with music and dancing, notably rehearsing songs from the film. And there were a few penned by Stan Jones that he hoped would become
3: hits. When there was music in the air, I generally went looking for my sidekick, Lenny Gear. He was cast as the fireman who helped me steal the train. And here he's been trimmed up for the park. Then he's a music man in his off-duty hours, a regular hepcat. Everybody called him Daddy-O because he spoke nothing but bebop slang. Every chance we could, we'd get off in a corner and rehearse the songs we were doing the picture. Roll, Jordan, roll. I want to go heaven when I die, for old Hey, we're not bad. Hey, how about Stan's song, Railroad Man? I rode
2: 10,000 miles of rusty rails, but my baggy was a railroad man. And I never had at the county jail my
1: was Eventually the rain would pass and production would continue without much incident, save a notice that showed up in the Clayton Times in October. Disney loses poison alcohol from location. Hold it, don't drink that alcohol. Walt Disney Productions reported that 10 to 15 gallons of denatured alcohol has been taken from the supply depot at Mountain City and is poison. We hope, (laughs) said Bill Sheehan, assistant unit manager, that the persons who appropriated the alcohol will use it only to remove the paint. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Jeffrey Hunter, be careful, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is poison. These old mountain guys were like, this is nothing. This is like sipping. This is sipping alcohol for us. That's right. Oh, man, that is rough.
1: That is scary stuff. Well, as production drew to a close, the town and Disney were nothing but effusive of each other. Vess Parker claimed this undoubtedly, in all seriousness, is one of the most beautiful sections of the country I've been in. Vess Parker requested a day off in Atlanta after filming Rap to go visit children in hospitals and sing to them. He attended a Decatur girl who wanted Walt the dog and bought her a dog from the Humane Society and had Stan Jones in tow to sing to the kids at the Scottish Rite Hospital. <laughs> Police even had to escort Parker to his plane because he was so focused on the children. So, bless Fess. Bless Fess. And Stan Jones everywhere. Stan Jones, to everywhere, every man. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Larry Watkin would send a letter to the town, stating, On behalf of Pete Lyon, the actors and the crew of the Great Locomotive Chase, I would like to say, Thank you, Clayton. Ordinarily, a motion picture company regards shooting on location with dread, a necessary evil which must be born. But the Walt Disney people who invaded your town in September and October of 1955 were amazed and delighted to find that Clayton was different. Several weeks have passed since we left Georgia, and we're still talking about it the wonderful hospitality that Clayton afforded the beauty of the countryside, but most of all, the friendliness of you Georgians about the highest praise that could be given. A community was voiced by one of our grips, a seasoned workman who has traveled with motion picture troops all over the world. He told me that's one little town. I wouldn't mind going back to just for a visit. Boy, I'd like to see that seasoned workman. No, I bet he was seasoned. All right. Decades later in 1973, A local grocer reflected about the generosity of Walt Disney. According to the Greenville News, they still remember Walton Clayton. He was a great man, a good man, easy to talk to. Yeah, Walt sat right around that stove there, said Earl Gillespie, pointing to the pot-bellied stove and the old-fashioned grocery store he has operated here for 40 years. Walt stayed here a lot of the time. He liked to come over here and talk to me. He'd eat cheese and sweet crackers and sit around with the folks. When they were finishing up the picture, Walt came up here one night and said to Earl, do you reckon it would make the boys mad if I gave them a little tip? I said, no, I don't expect they'd mind that. Walt had a roll of $100 bills as big as your fist. And when he went down there passing them out among the boys, it was something to see.
0: Man. Uh, man, Walt making it rain. Walt and a party on vacation. <laughs> You know this. Uh, you know this story checks out because Walt was just eating cheese and crackers. That does check out. I bet that he scans. loved it.
1: I bet he loved it there.
0: You got to wonder how much this reminded him of like Marceline. I mean, it had and, to. I mean, it, it, it's of course looks completely different, but it had to have a similar vibe. Yes. Yes.
1: Well, as for Walt, he was nothing but smiles upon returning from his two-week vacation on the set. We had a big time in the old town, the boss reported. Everybody turned out to see the actors, but it was our old trains that stole the show. Well, that wraps up part one, Michael, of our deep dive into Great Locomotive Chase. Have we gone deep enough yet?
0: I, I know no. There's certainly, there's always deeper to dig. That's I right. find in life, there's always deeper to dig yourself into. But uh, yeah, there's plenty more to talk about. And you've done some real legwork on some really special content for next time. Yeah, we got some interviews coming up next next episode
1: which i'm really excited about uh but man that picture of walt hanging out at the general store eating some cheese and crackers walt was really a man of my own heart you know i could see i could see just enjoying some cheese and crackers being enough for me just shooting
0: the breeze yeah i mean the great yeah you know he just had to be eating this up literally along with the cheese and crackers but (laughs) just eating up the experience of just hanging out in a small town like the one he remembered from his youth and playing with some trains that's right
1: well so again we're excited to share part two with this please tune in it's going to be some interesting interviews and a little bit extra stories of the tale of the great locomotive chase As Michael said earlier, if you want to reach out to us on email, you might make it onto the podcast. Our email is podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. And uh, on Twitter, Michael is at ProgressCityUSA. I am at Jeff G. Crawford. And now is the time, now is the best time to check in with our Patreon, Michael, and see if anybody has signed up this week.
0: Yes, we have some new listener patrons. we like to thank Brian, who graced us with an email early in the episode, and Don, both of them, for signing up for our Patreon. They will be getting early access to episodes, the inside scoop on what we're up to, early access to documents from the Progress City Public Library. And for those at the Silver Level, they'll be joining us for our monthly live stream where everybody gets together we have a fun chat talk about whatever the subject is that month see some rare photos see some rare video hopefully and just have a great hang with some great people in the chat so uh, thank you so much for joining and for supporting us you can join at patreon.com slash progress cityusa and that is tax deductible now so right, that's a big announcement, right there. Big Michael. announcement. I know we um, have incorporated as a nonprofit historical foundation now. So any any donations, whether you're donating items to the Progress City Public Library to be scanned and posted, or whether you're donating to the Patreon, it's all tax deductible now. So it's our way of giving back a little something to you as a way of thanks. Well, that is exciting.
1: Be exciting to see you all on the next live stream and, uh, please tune in next time for more tales of the great locomotive chase.
0: Anything else to say before we sign off, Michael? No, I, this is, this has been fun and it's, it's always nice to go down the road. You know, this is one of my favorite places to hang out in real life. So it's nice to imagine, you know, what this, what this would have been like 50, 60 years ago. Uh, more so now gosh and you know imagine just heading up and down that railroad with Walt. that's right so join us on the rails next time
1: in a couple of weeks where we will continue talking about the great locomotive chase from all of us to all of you thank you very much we'll see you next time so long
2: Right Now it's time to go remember
3: everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today
2: So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress tell them about progress city Thanks Thanks for joining joining us. us
1: Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at usa.com The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour.
4: They call it Progress.